0: falling in love is a mystery novel
1: even in the sex scenes he has just like literally all
0: of the power maybe we need to caveat that there are slight tv 14 sex references in this podcast
1: welcome to literary connections we're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected i'm known ass james okay. earl <laughs>
0: You're known as an ass?
1: No, I, known ass, like Adam Carlson, known ass. As soon as I <laughs> read the phrase in the book, I was like, that's my opening, known ass.
0: I love it. I mean, my my opening is obviously, I'm Melissa Hansen, and I am so glad that I left Academia because that was my thought the entire novel is yeah. like, what a shit show environment this is. <laughs>
1: yes. Uh, this month, we're reading The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood. And uh, there's going to be spoilers. I feel like this is a pretty easy one to summarize. So um, do, we, do we have a minute on the clock?
0: My hypothesis, James, is that you can do this. Oh, that's good. So three, two, one, go.
1: Olive starts out the book thinking that she's going to attend grad school. She meets a mysterious man in a bathroom who convinces her to do it. Then, when she's at grad school two years later, she has a friend who's has a crush on her ex-boyfriend, and she needs to convince her friend that she's dating somebody else so that her friend doesn't feel guilty about dating this ex-boyfriend. And her plan is to fake date a very prestigious professor at the university, They fake date through the entire book. It's like a pretty classic trope. And, of course, they fall in love in the course of that. But then they realize that they've kind of always been in love because of that bathroom experience. And they do reach your quota for at least two makeouts that you asked for at the end of the last episode. And it all works out in the end. And the professor's best friend turns out to be a jerk. (laughs) Some things are Uh, out of order and not contextualized, but... (laughs)
0: But that was the heart of it. And you were exactly one minute. So really good internal timing. I also like that you said two makeouts. I feel like they were not out. Well, it depends on your definition of makeout, James. <laughs> like, which base does making out hit these days with the kids?
1: I mean, this happens at the end. This happens in, like, chapter 16 and chapter 17 when the makeouts, if we're calling them makeouts, happen. But I think it's actually a decent place to start because I was like, what kind of novel is this? It fronts as a young professional novel, like it's about, I don't know, 25-year-olds and 37-year-olds or however old Adam is. Then they act like 15-year-olds, like all of their drama is very 16-year-old drama, like they're sitting on each other's laps at academic conferences. or just like a bunch <laughs> of ridiculous <laughs> shit that happens.
0: Okay, I've got two things to say about that. One, the lab sitting, absolutely inappropriate. Like, that was such a just rom-com moment that would never have happened. Suspension of disbelief. But number two, I've met grad students. I worked in a lab for two years as a lab manager thinking I was going to get my PhD, and Grad students absolutely act like they're like 12 years old oh, okay. <laughs> and all yeah. of their drama is like 12-year-old drama because you're in a sort of arrested development. You're continuing to go to school and not like go into the professional world. So you kind of just stay put like emotionally, professionally. And it's a very weird time. Like the sort of love triangles I saw people get into, the pettiness of the drama, you don't have any like quote unquote real world stakes
1: Okay, that's good to know because I was just like thinking that these were a bunch of 16-year-olds put into 25-year-old bodies for most of the book. But yeah, I I guess your point about it being Arrested Development. I mean, my experience of going to grad school was I just go to the library and then I go home and I go (laughs) to the pub where all the other grad students go and I drink one beer and then I go to sleep. That was my experience of grad school.
0: I think that for PhD programs, especially research-based programs, They're just like hyper-competitive. We did not have like a really big drinking culture unless we were like at conferences. People were always trying to undermine each other's research, become first author for publications. It was very mean girly. And then also because you don't encounter literally anyone else because you're spending all of your time in the lab, you can only fall in love with the people who are around you who are like fellow grad students or professors. So this, honestly, that part rings super true to what I experienced hanging out with grad students for many years.
1: That's super interesting because I didn't see any of the, like, competing for first author or, like, there was none of that kind of jockeying. It wasn't that kind of drama. If it was that kind of drama, I'd be like, okay. But this was like, oh, my God, you're dating my best friend. And the drama just seemed really YA drama.
0: Well, that was actually a question I was going to ask you is, Someone who spent obviously time in like a graduate program, but not like a scientific research grad program, because a lot of the stuff rings super true to me. Like, here's some quotes that I really enjoyed. All of a sure, he was a PhD student. The haughty, condescending tone was a dead giveaway. That was a great line. Was I happy? Of course not. It's academia. And then this was my favorite line is, what's wrong? She expected the answer to be, my p-value is 0.06. <laughs> I like laughed out loud at that.
1: <laughs> I, that was one of the best lines.
0: Like, is this entertaining for people who did not have to go through dealing with scientific grad students?
1: No, it was totally, I mean, also I I know what a p-value is. So you, yeah, I guess you you need like a certain level of proximity towards people that deal with data analysis, I think, to get those kinds of jokes and enjoy it. But no, I, th- I I laughed out loud at that line too. That was one of the best lines in it. That that's the peak drama,
0: right? But that's what I mean. It's like, but that is the they're sixteen years old. <laughs> like that is yeah. the drama. It's like I got an A minus, my value people- <laughs> like, is 0.06. and obviously I read the author bio at the end where she's like, yeah, she actually like has her degree, and right. that totally tracked because everything was so authentic. But I think you're right. Like the drama that I thought was going to happen, like everyone is just like friends with each other. I mean, other than Tom, the evil professor from Harvard, no one is showing the true unethical and really shitty behavior that I learned to expect from other people in academia, which was actually what was really, really surprising to me because that to me is more of the drama you experience and less the romantic drama. The things that I remember experiencing a lot were people like falsifying their data and or just... Manipulating it within an inch of its life until they could find something significant. There's that. There is people blatantly lying about their results. And there are people, they do mention this a little bit about like stealing first authorship, but like the ramifications of publisher perish. Everything here seems honestly like pretty sweet. Like they're only young, hot professors, they all got tenure super quickly. <laughs> like I'm like where is like the actual like reality for that part of academia and I was just really surprised that we didn't get to hear more of that
1: yeah right the number of 35 year old tenured professors at Harvard and Stanford in this book are probably greater than the number of actual people that age with that position yeah like do they
0: not have a postdoc do they go straight into being a professor (laughs) is this like 1984 yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah
1: So, in terms of genre, I I think part of why we're not seeing any of that kind of thing is that I think that this is just a romance novel, and it's just wish fulfillment. Like, this is just a playground. Cut out all that nasty, who's the first author going to be on this paper, Or like, manipulating the data. Everybody there is in science for the right reasons. The only, like, real, caustic, nefarious, I don't know, just, like, crappy behavior is directly related to the romance, and, like is just the, the obstacle that needs to be overcome for the romance to win. And very conveniently, there's a recording of it that proves that it happened. So it's just like, everything is neat. As she said in that author's note, like she did her PhD and this is just the like fantasy in her head. Totally.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting when you think about like the drama of Tom and the recording, because that was honestly the thing that rang most inauthentic to me about the entire scenario. First of all, what I really loved is when Adam says at the very end, he's like, oh, well, because of the recording, like, Tom is getting fired, of course. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Right, that's just wish fulfillment. That's fantasy.
0: That is fantasy. Like, wish fulfillment. Like, I literally, before this, because I was trying to remember, there's, like, one most notorious case of a professor that was, like, basically pressured to resign because he had tenure because he had been, like, sexually harassing his grad students. And I just typed in, like, Astronomy professor sexual harassment, thinking that this one article was going to show up. And then it turned out there were like, have been multiple professors <laughs> of astronomy that have sexually harassed their grad students. And I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> and the biggest thing a university will do to a professor is maybe put them on like an unpaid sabbatical or something. There is no way that they get fired, even with a recording. And I feel like if we've learned anything, like recordings, especially during like, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, recordings mean nothing. <laughs> It's all about PR.
1: And additionally, even if he got fired from Harvard, he'd just get a tenure job at Virginia Tech. Like, it's nothing so totally. to that dude in the real world. Yeah. It's just fantasy. It's
0: absolutely fantasy. I think also, this was another thing that didn't quite resonate with me, and I kind of wish the book had gone a little bit deeper. But again, I understand that this is not the genre or the book for that is I really do feel like the way that Tom pulled it was a very like legally blonde sort of sexual harassment (laughs) where it's like super duper obvious. (laughs) Like this is sexual harassment. I'm a villain. I just hired you because you're hot.
1: Right. There was none of the like grooming of knocking her down and like all the like more subtle ways that this kind of abuse would happen.
0: Exactly. Reading about a lot of grad students who've been in the position about like super late nights or like, come over to my house, let's talk about your research. There are ways that professors can put a lot of pressure onto students. And this was not the case. This was just a guy being like, let's fuck. She said, no. He's like, well, you're a shitty scientist anyway. Like it was like...
1: (laughs) And that's so they could set up the recording like that. I'm sure that that's why.
0: Exactly. And I think that that was a little bit dangerous in the book because I totally get how like dating your professor is like such a fantasy trope. But like basically what we have are we have like two professors who end up dating grad students. And everything's perfect because they're not each other's like PIs. And so they can date and it's totally okay. And Sanford says it's totally okay. And they're all in love and they're meant to be together. Or you have like a horrible <laughs> professor who basically just like tries to sex you up at a conference in front of other people. Like, that is not, it it doesn't really communicate this insidious, more subtle dangers of professor-student relationships. Right.
1: Yeah, there was definitely, like, a false binary there of just, like, these are the two options.
0: Yeah. And I think there was one line that I wrote down. It occurred to her that Adam also had significantly more to lose from their relationship and that is also like fundamentally false. Grad students are the ones who are in super vulnerable positions with their PIs. And it was just very interesting how he was being portrayed as like, oh, this could go super bad for him when we know that professors will never actually get fired for sexually harassing their grad students.
1: Right. And especially his reputation in the book and the MacArthur Fellowship and all that. Yeah, he's the one with all the power. I think that in this book, the nature of power is is interesting because it's never recreational. It's never, like, self-aware where somebody realizes that they have it and they're able to, like, then step away or, like, make sure that other people are heard. It's almost always exclusively oppressive. Tom doesn't really realize how much power he has over her. He doesn't realize how much power he has over other people. Tom realizes it, but does it anyway. Um, uh, Olive, with her knowledge of, uh, you know, the fake relationship and being manipulative to on, Like, there's never a, like, make space kind of moment in this book. It's like, just power is oppressive, and there's no recreational, there's no play within...
0: Yeah, one thing that was interesting to me and we previous to this podcast, we were discussing Jane Eyre. One thing we talked about with Jane Eyre is how there is a moment where the power between Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester shifts once basically she becomes his caretaker in the end. Like there is something about an unequal power balance and then making people seem more like equals in order to like analyze the relationship of power there. And I was surprised that it really felt like all of the all structures of power felt maintained throughout. I don't mind sex scenes in books. I think that especially as long as they show a lot of character within them, and I think that these sex scenes do. It was interesting to me that like it was a complete. She is the nubile young girl, both as a scientist and as like a sexual being, and in every instance, he's like, oh yeah, like. I don't, wait, how graphic do we get on this podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> no uh, this is exactly what i'm talking about though is that yeah even even in the sex scenes he has just like literally all of the power and it's just whether or not she's going to eroticize her subordination
0: or not totally yeah i think that they try to like make it like oh it's consent and it's sexy consent because he's like can i blank in you happens twice in all the ways that you can imagine someone blanking into someone else and <laughs> <laughs> maybe we need a caveat that there are slight tv 14 sex references in this podcast and, so she, and she consents both times and that to me is also just like oh okay so we're not doing any sort of inversion of power here it's power in the most traditional way across every single realm
1: yes and uh, the fact that that happened in the sex scene right like because Sex scenes, if they're only about sex, end up just being porn. And this one did have more character than that. It was it was definitely, like, still about their power imbalance. But it was just confirming it. Like, there is no place that he has less power than her other than the fact that he, like, really likes her. Like, that's that's the only thing that subordinates him. And that's, like, that's pretty trivial.
0: Yeah. I think that there's also this interesting thing of, like, why is he into her? And it's, like, because... She is in academia, quote unquote, for the right reasons. I feel very like I'm watching The Bachelor saying that. (laughs) I feel like that's honestly a very trivial reason to be into someone, especially because the majority of people I do know who went to academia are in academia for the right reasons. Like she is a classic grad student who is doing classic me search, which is research but it's about me like I remember anytime I've like interviewed grad students or undergrads for research positions in labs that I managed it was always like oh well I'm studying x y or z and I'm like okay and they're like because of something in my childhood and I'm like of course <laughs> like yeah obviously like that is what you do that to me seemed like a very trivial reason for him to be into her versus it was sort of like told and not shown that she's also a good scientist. Like being a good scientist is more than having a good idea or like an authentic desire to move the field forward and save lives. You can tell that Adam really cares about people who like use statistics well and people who are just like setting up experiments really authentically, which is huge and actually like a huge problem in academia. And I really respected that part about him. But to me, that's more important than being in academia, quote unquote, for the right reasons. Right.
1: Yeah. Being rigorous.
0: Right. Being rigorous. So it's not like he fell in love with her because she's rigorous. And we're really just told that she's rigorous and not shown it. And then even the things that she does screw up, she's like late at the lab once and she's like, I don't know why this thing isn't working. He like gently points out to her like, oh, I think that you need to do this. And then it solved all of her problems. And I think that was also, like, a classic example of, first of all, him showing enormous bias because in any sort of capacity where he was reviewing her colleagues' research, he would have, like, poked a big hole in front of other professors and been like, you're an idiot. Yeah. (laughs) Which is a really insidious part of, like, professor-student relationships, even if they're not your PI, especially if they're not your PI. I think that it shows that she's not actually, like, that much smarter than anyone else, too.
1: Yeah, in fact, you could make a strong argument that she's not rigorous, like the fact that she wouldn't want him on her grading panel, especially if she's so serious about this me-search, that she's going to want the guy who's going to be able to help her actually make the clinical trial work and like solve this problem. And it seems like he is that guy.
0: I also think that sometimes Olive struggled a little bit as a character, being like one of those classic YA characters where she's like, wow, this is what the professor that I wrote to looks like. And those things drive me up a freaking wall, especially in academia. Like, you know who everybody is. I was like, did you apply to this professor not knowing whether or not she had relationships with big enough labs that you could do your research? Like, that is like research thing number one when you're picking a professor. (laughs) I guess some people don't pay attention, but I wouldn't expect people who are like top of their class, brilliant researchers to not know and not think about the important people in the field and their relationships with each other. Like I knew every professor that my professors had done research with.
1: To to pull this back to the um, element of power and just like how it completely imbalanced this, this whole love story is a book that I thought did us really well was Sally Rooney's Normal People where at every stage of that couple's relationship, one of them had an imbalance of power, but it was never the same one every single time. It was Mm -hmm. like, this person's popular But this person's rich. This person is, you know, fitting into college really well, but this person is more experienced with, I don't know, whatever. But it was always like they were trying to reconcile these power differences before they become normal people at the end. And this one was just like, nope, Adam is better and more powerful in every single situation that you could imagine. And the only thing that humbles him at all is just that he, like, really likes her.
0: Yeah. And I guess part of me wants to, like, give the book a pass. Like, it's supposed to be a fantasy. Like, I can totally understand this being, like, honestly, the ultimate fantasy as a 22-year-old grad student. Where the super hot, super ripped, tenured (laughs) professor who's in his early 30s. What? Totally, like, is in love with you and obsessed with you and takes you under his ring as a scientist and a woman. And I'm like, I totally get that fantasy. Like, you don't want to yuck other people's yums, especially when it comes to, like, sexual fantasy. But at the same time, I'm like, can we add a little more nuance? Like, academia is, like, toxic as fuck. Yeah.
1: Also, the cover of this book is, like, a cartoon, skinny brunette guy. But then the action of this book is straight up Fabio romance novel, huge man, blowing (laughs) hair, ripped stomach. Like, just there's a disconnect between the cover art, which was clearly directed at, 16-year-old YA audience and the content that had people blanking and other people, which is like very clearly romance novel on the beach that my stepmom would have read.
0: Yeah, especially considering like in the YA books that we think that the audience is targeting, like those tend to at least try to interrogate these dynamics a little bit more. This feels like very surface level, like written 10 years ago, the fantasy is undisturbed, but there is a evil villain who uh, is potentially trying to like ruin the maiden like i'm thinking back to like exactly the fabio sort of thing of like the young ingenue virgin who falls in love with the worldly rogue and then there's an even worse rogue who's trying to like steal her virtue but don't worry Fabio's gonna beat him up. Yeah,
1: don't worry, he's bigger and more powerful in all the ways, like physically and within academia and everything will be taken care of because Fabio will take care of it.
0: Yeah, which was interesting when I went at the very end when Adam heard the audience and was like, I'm gonna kill you, Tom, if you hurt the woman I love, I'm gonna kill you. When I feel like in academia it would be like less like, I'm gonna kill you and more like, I'm going to steal all of your grants. I'm going to beat you for every million dollar grant that you want. I'm going to take from you. I'm going to take every grad student that you think you want. Turn your
1: lab manager against you.
0: Yes. (laughs) I'll show that no one can repro your research. And that all of it is garbage. (laughs) Yeah, grad students don't usually go around beating each other up.
1: No, no, nor are they as ripped as Dr. Adam.
0: Absolutely not I guess they, they try to like explain that by the fact that he doesn't have any hobbies other than work and working out. Yeah. So the time that some people might be spending eating. He
1: goes for runs sometimes. Yeah. I go for runs sometimes. <laughs> and, I...
0: <laughs> and you don't look like Fabio? Wait, this is a podcast, James. You could just tell everyone that you look like Fabio. Yeah. James looks like Fabio from running occasionally. <laughs> yeah. For our for our listeners, that's a true statement. Yeah, and I feel like the book really still romanticizes academia as like the ultimate pursuit Mm -hmm. when in reality the majority of people will leave academia because there are not enough professor positions for the number of grad students who are selected and like this is always like my big thing where it's like academia is a ponzi scheme ultimately if you need grad students to replace the professors we have each professor over their lifespan would need to be like one or two grad students and yet they will have dozens across their career which is why it's such a like horrible competitive environment. And so I feel like that is another thing where the book didn't speak to the reality of grad school being cutthroat for that very reason. Not just because people can't hack it, but because it is designed so that professors can get cheap labor selling people this fake dream.
1: Yeah, and that romanticism of uh, the academic versus the industry person. And the thing that's at stake there is really just prestige. It's like prestige or money. And so there's something... That's perceived as more honorable if you stay Ravenclaw rather than go Slytherin. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that is true. Like, I don't know if prestige is, because you're still doing research, right? Like, if you go to industry, you're still doing the things to, it's just you're working for Big Pharma instead of Harvard. But like, is that better? I don't know.
0: I don't know. Also, especially considering research and academia tends to be so far away from the actual practice. When people go into industry, usually there's like a faster turnaround because people want to make money as fast as possible. Like I know someone who left academia to become a social worker. Like you can be a lot more hands-on. Industry tends to be a lot more hands-on than academia is. Like more real, not arrested development, 16-year-old drama. One of her roommates, Malcolm, comes from a long lineage of professors, like very esteemed professors, and is getting a lot of pressure to quote-unquote hack it in academia um, when he wants to move into industry. And so this is like an ongoing debate with him and his parents that is even more painful because Adam, uh, Olive's boyfriend, has maligned Malcolm's research. But then Malcolm starts dating a professor who is young, hot, and tenured, and he convinces Malcolm's parents that actually industry is a noble pursuit and is able to, like, win them over to understanding that there's a place for each. They do interrogate it a little bit, but again, feels like another like tell not show. Mm-hmm. Like we hear about it, but we don't actually get to like see what that debate looked like.
1: Right, right. Nor do we have any examples of somebody in industry,
0: really. Right, exactly.
1: So I picked out some IB questions. Great. So we've been doing this thing where we try to answer an IB paper two question. So I picked out a couple for today. Here's one. Although doubt is not a pleasant condition, certainty is an absurd one. In the light of this statement, explore the impressions of doubt and or certainty conveyed in at least two works you have studied. And I think this is an interesting question for this book because if we just focus on the relationship there's both doubt and certainty. Olive is certain that Adam doesn't like her and that she has no chance and that she's also, you know, doubting her worth as an academic and her place in this school and and all sorts of things. So I feel like there's a lot of ways we can go with this.
0: Yeah, as well as so much of academia or research in general is turning doubt into certainty, is getting that p-value at less than 0.05. Yeah. It is... Inherently, in the same way I think about like me search, it's like it's people who are coming into a situation with an enormous amount of uncertainty, usually because of like that me search link, not just the research and the science, but about their own lives and how they're trying to make certainty out of it and control everything around them through research and like getting that certainty. What academia can do is often calcify the idea that, like, oh, if you become a professor, you have gained certainty that you're able to find the answer of who you are, get your power, all that kind of stuff. And like, ultimately, that's to a certain extent impossible. You need to like figure out who you are absent of research and these known power structures.
1: Yeah, I mean, the book begins with hypothesis, staying away from love is the best idea or whatever. And then it ends with, hypothesis well it's not so bad actually and so she goes from certainty of i shouldn't get involved with anybody i should stay away from love generally and so she begins with certainty and then she ends with a doubt with like well maybe it'll be okay I'm, I'm open to it being okay
0: yeah i think hypothesis is meant to be more of like a tongue-in-cheek sort of name and like a cute way to start all the chapters. But I like where you're going, where it's like, at a start, it's less of a hypothesis, as it's more like a thesis. But by the end, it truly is more of a, like, yeah, like, a hypothesis of wondering.
1: And there's also the relationship of this to something like imposter syndrome, which she clearly has throughout. Doubt It's a not unpleasant condition where she's constantly questioning her position at the university. And Tom obviously plays off of this in the final chapters, telling her that she doesn't belong there and that, that she's not there based on her own virtues or anything like this. So she doubts her position there. And then her certainty seems absurd. Like, I mean, we, we're calling this a fantasy novel because it's it's just so clearly a fantasy. Like, it's an absurd condition that they're sitting in each other's laps and that, they, <laughs> that all this worked out. And then she had the recording and, you know, the villain is defeated unambiguously.
0: Yeah. For some reason, the only thing that I keep thinking is... Is not a work that we've read together, but I keep on hearing the song "Both Sides Now" by Joni Mitchell in my head. It's like I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow it's clouds' illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. <laughs>
1: uh, if we wrote about Joni Mitchell, it would be fine. Like, but you'd need to go deep on like a full album or something. Um, there are there are certain songwriters that are. That you're allowed to write about on the IB, and I feel like Joni Mitchell is probably one of them, but for sure, Kendrick Lamar is, for sure, Bob Dylan is.
0: Um, well, one thing that I think is cool about the IB questions, which we haven't really delved into yet as a podcast, is like we've we we hit our one year mark. We've read twelve books, and so I think that we can actually start comparing the books that we're reading now to the books that we've read. And so I'm curious when you think of the quote: "Although doubt is not a pleasant condition, certainty is an absurd one." What other works are you sort of thinking about in contrast to this one?
1: Looking at the list, the one that pops out at me in terms of this question is the mystery novel series that we read, Truly Devious, mm. where Stevie Bell is in constant pursuit of, of certainty. And so like every, every novel that begins with doubt and her whole purpose is just to like localize blame, figure that out, get certainty, and then expel it from the community and to some extent that happens in uh uh, the love hypothesis as well like in order for everything to have a happy ending they need to like localize this blame with tom he's like this thing that infects adam's professional life he has a certain considerable power over olive's academic life and he needs to be overcome like blame needs to be localized there he needs to be expelled from the community kicked out forever and then we can all live happily ever after And so even though this is in no way a mystery novel, it shares that, like, the way in which this moves from doubt to certainty is very similar. And so I think it's different enough that I could compare them, but then they sort of have that same essential quality to them.
0: Now I'm trying to think about romance novels as mystery novels. (laughs) Because... (laughs) Like, there is, like, that similarity of just, like, people coming in with, like, certainty of, like, oh, like, I know what t- what is to be true here. And, and the truth is that he doesn't love me. <laughs>
1: it's always that. Or the truth is he's a jerk and we're completely incompatible. Yeah. And that these things need to be overcome.
0: And then you dig a little bit deeper. Like, Falling in Love is a mystery novel, ultimately. Yeah. It's getting more and more clues yeah. along the way. And you ultimately like won't be a hundred percent certain in the same way that your P value might be less than 0.05, but correlation ain't causation. It's really hard to prove certain things. Yeah. And so at a certain point you have to take a leap of faith. Yeah.
1: Romance novels are in that kind of way, a mystery novel where it's gathering clues, figuring out if, you know, being certain that the other person is into you too, and then going forward with the leap of faith. That's, that's cool. Yeah. So I think we could write a good essay on that. I mean,
0: why else would we be stalking people's Instagram so much Yeah, if they weren't a mystery novel? This also yeah.
1: reminds me of a part of the book that I found crazy. The part of this novel that really frustrated me was how it was very obvious that Adam, the huge man, is the same huge man from the bathroom. And it was like farcical how she kept on bringing it up and not putting those things together. <laughs> The third person limited that focuses just on Olive's brain is just crazy because we know that Adam is in love with her from the beginning. We know that he's the guy from the bathroom. We know that she is actually in love with him. And like all of these revelations just don't hit hard when they hit.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting choice because usually for books in the genre, I feel like they tend to be in first person. And so it was very interesting being in third person when the narrator narrative voice was giving us more information and not like, I think I can only remember one line where I was like, oh, it's like trying to do something because we're in third person after she kisses him in the hallway for the first time and then runs away. and He's like, Olive. Right. And then the narrator is like, Olive didn't realize that, that she had never told him her name.
1: <laughs> I know. I know right so these like little mysteries they're just not mysteries
0: yeah <laughs> and even if you think that like it could have been a mystery for a second don't worry the book will tell you what it was yeah.
1: i mean that's been a case with a lot of the books we've read in this podcast where it's like, like tokyo ever after where you're like yeah mm-hmm. of course the bodyguard is into her and spin the dawn of course the thousand year old uh, pro man is into her
0: yeah man there's a lot of books that we've read that that the trope is he's handsome he's hot and he's really mean (laughs) right it's
1: the darcy trope um except these books don't really the guy is never actually that mean
0: he's mean to everyone except me yeah he just wants them to be good scientists he's not actually mean but
1: like the bodyguard in tokyo ever after was never actually mean the the thousand year old crow man in the dawn was like never actually that mean yeah and even adam like you know in a high stress situation he didn't sugarcoat feedback and people got sad. i don't know (laughs) it's just not that mean
0: we need meaner men. I
1: don't know. Like, I believed Darcy was a jerk. Like, I believed that he was just, like, the pinnacle of privilege and just an, an a-hole. And then when when you realize he's not, it, like, actually hit.
0: Darcy is a dick. <laughs> right. Like, the very fact in his proposal, he's like, you know, I tried not to feel anything for you because your family sucks, <laughs> but I can't stop myself. <laughs> like, dude needs to, like, learn his lesson throughout the book. Yeah like he grows. Yeah, that's true. I'm not sure that Adam has grown in this book other than he's like maybe sometimes I can say feedback in a slightly better way. Not like I need to consciously unwrite my own narrative of my own privilege. That's the
1: difference in nuance. So I listened to the one chapter out of order because of the way our Audible accounts work and I just heard that one conversation with her him being like no, I don't I'm not getting vaccinated for the flu. And so I, like, stopped listening and then turned to Kimberly and I was like, man, Adam's an anti-vaxxer. I didn't see that coming.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think that is also an interesting thing around, well, first of all, now that I think about it, it's probably the only time that she's had power over him. Yeah. Which is, she got him to be vaccinated. Good job. Of like, you might know what's good for you, but, like, not do it.
1: So, Melissa, yes. what do you want to read next?
0: We have been doing a lot of, like, modern stuff. I feel like we should, you know, go back in time a little. All right. I think we can stick with the romance, but maybe not so academic. All
1: right. Well, that sounds like we're heading towards historical fiction, and I'm always down for historical fiction, and I don't think we've done any real historical fiction. No. I mean, maybe one last stop counts.
0: Um, Kind of. That time travel. But, you know, I think we can do historical fiction, but, like, still have, like, a little bit of magic, like, one last stop.
1: Do you have anything in mind?
0: A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsky, which is sold by Goodreads as a himbo-librarian pairing, but make it gay, <laughs> as well as being a top book from Rick Reardon. So I don't know what that Venn diagram is, but it sounds great.
1: Okay, I'm in. Oh, yeah, look, Edwardian England, 1908, English upper class, secretly magicians. Oh, I'm in. Let's do it. Secretly magicians.
0: Yes, Unexpected Dangers. Upvote.
1: A, a
0: secret that more than one person has already died to king. oh my god <laughs> bring back the death no one died in this book
1: frenemies to lovers we only do frenemies to lovers but let's do another one
0: yeah yeah yeah. maybe this one will finally be enough of an asshole for you james
1: okay yeah let's do it, it also recruited and also says it's it's r-rated so i guess we're doing another steamy one
0: Yeah, we'll have to have another uh, warning on our podcast in case we need to talk about specific acts in places. (laughs) Okay. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading Marvelous Light by Freya Marsky.
1: All right. See you next month.
0: See you next month. Yeah, I will count you in one second. Um, the last thing I Googled that auto-completed on Google was, what, I typed in the word one, and it was, one tree hill, <laughs> dog eats heart. <laughs> was the last time I typed in the word one. Okay. Um,